the people back on Earth, the crew of Apollo 8 has a message that we would like to send to you. All engines are started. That looks really good. So we'd like it to uh, stir up your cryo tank. Oh wow, it's going up so slowly! The state of the space flyer during the flight is being observed with the help of radio, telemetric, and television devices. Station, this is Houston. Are you ready for the event? Yes, I'm all set, yeah. Hello, welcome to the December edition of Space Boffins with Richard Hollingham and Sue Nelson. We're joined in the studio by space journalist and broadcaster Sarah Crudis and also with a space engineer and rocket insurer from the Atrium Space Insurance Consortium. That's very hard to say, isn't it? David Wade for our bumper festive edition. Which job's better? Space journalist or rocket insurer? I think rocket insurer. Uh, so actually, isn't it a sign of the times that these jobs exist? Because they wouldn't have done fifty years ago or so. I mean, no, a rocket insurer. I think it's just a typical of the new era we're in. And you had to be an engineer in order to get your job. Uh, absolutely, as a rocket and I, I enjoy dabbling a little bit like this. But I've got to say, I thoroughly enjoy my job. So uh, I'm not giving it up. There's no, there's no applications. <laughs> I'm sorry. Um, Coming up then, we'll have part two of our Al Warden interview with a surprising revelation from the Apollo 15 astronaut. Uh, we'll also be looking back over a few of our Space Boffins highlights from the past year, including genetically modified astronauts. And uh, just want to mention for the listener who complained we were having too much fun last time, there'll be absolutely no fun. I in think this we've blown podcast. that anyway. We've already started laughing. We've already started so, laughing. Yeah, I know, that's yeah. it. Never mind. Really know it's very serious, this podcast. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Very By the serious. way, happy birthday, Sarah. Thank you. We managed this uh, last year, didn't and we? And the year before. And the year before. It's a tradition. It is. It is. Now, you've to... just come back from uh, California, yep. New Space Frontier. Yeah, I, I think, um, so I was there attending the, the Breakthrough Prize, and for those who might not know what that is, that's um, Yuri Milner, Sergey Brin, and uh, Mark Zuckerberg and their partners basically have set up to make science as glamorous as the Oscars or something like this. What, so this Mark Zuckerberg is... making it glamorous? Well, you know. It's an interesting, it's an interesting gla- concept, the man with grey t-shirts, yeah. Glamorous in terms of the fact that we reward so many other industries, but we don't reward scientists. So these are $3 million prizes which go to different disciplines in science. They get a load of A-listers there and me. <laughs> and we, um, you know, you celebrate science at NASA. And you, it's really good because I think... What we are seeing now is that pendulum shift. We're coming up to the 50th anniversary of Apollo, Apollo 11, and I just think now is the time when change is happening and it's private enterprise which is driving this forward. And one example is private individuals giving money to science. Yuri Milner is obviously um, giving money to Project Starshot where they aim to send very tiny spacecraft to um, our nearest star. He also wants to fund a space mission to Enceladus. And I think private industry, just as it has done on Earth, is really going to change the way we explore space in ways we can't yet imagine. You've always been interested in the the commercial aspect of the future of space, haven't you? Yeah, I think for me, since I really got involved in what I'm doing now, seriously, um, I think business drives forward innovation, whether you like it or not. For example, as soon as you reduce the access to getting into space, as soon as launch is reusable and cost of launching goes down, you're going to open up the playing field to those kids in their dorm rooms with an idea in the same way that we did with the internet 25 years ago. And we can't even begin to imagine the ideas which are going to come, not just in terms of exploration, but benefiting us here on Earth. And we're living in a space age and these new space age entrepreneurs are just going to change the playing field and 
hugely exciting about it. It is. And David, you, obviously you, as part of your job, you have to keep up with all these uh, new developments. So do you think, you know, this is a sort of crucial tipping point moment or have we passed that tipping point? I don't think we've passed it just yet. I think we're certainly getting there. Space 2.0 has been talked about for a few <laughs> years now. And I think we're, we're certainly walking in the right direction. I see a lot of engineers pushing their ideas. And what I don't quite see yet is the demand from the market pulling those ideas through. Certain areas are, for sure. Um, Planet Planet Labs is doing some great work at producing data. This is New Zealand? Uh, no, this no, is, no, this no, is no, a California-based California, company. California, sorry. What's They've, the New Zealand one? That's Electron. Electron oh, is right. the rocket. Yes, that's right, because they're, they're launching from New Zealand. Who would have thought that? Absolutely. 20 <laughs> years ago, they're doing yeah. launches from New Zealand. I just think technology surprises us in how fast it moves on, so yeah. it might seem a way away now, but it'll happen faster than we realise, and I think 2018 is going to be a real change and I think um, things like space mining who would have thought about that 15 20 years ago but you can there's the potential to use the asteroid belt or the moon as an intergalactic petrol station which sounds like science fiction but just think one human lifetime ago you know if you lived 100 years you were born 100 years ago what you've seen in your lifetime in terms of flight commercial flight crossing the Atlantic the moon landings the space shuttle and then the mobile phone and the world we live in today. So but, but that's interesting what you say, David, about you're not seeing the demand. Because there is a demand from the science point of view. Because yes, yes. this reduction in cost, um, particularly small satellites, means PhD students, undergrads even, yeah. can work on experiments that go into space. Yeah. Now, that's Absolutely. a big change. So the demand's... On that side, on that side but the money's there. not necessarily the, there. Yes, that's the thing. We've never really been able to commercialise science in the past. There's some very interesting projects like Twinkle coming along where they are going to launch a, a telescope into space and sell the observing time on that satellite on a commercial basis. Oh, wow. So some fascinating new approaches being taken. And I think those projects are really going to transform it. I'm thoroughly with Sarah on this one. I really hope it's coming. I think it, it is coming. I don't know whether the timescales that we're, that we're currently looking at are some of the more optimistic ones that are being viewed just yet. But, yeah, it, it's definitely coming. I mean, you know, technology is being miniaturised. There's new applications. There's a whole bunch of projects out there. There's a lot of money available. As I say, I just want to see the markets develop to show that those engineers really are onto something. We'll, we'll talk more about 2018 and look ahead a little later on. Let's go for our first Space Boffins highlight, though. And it's uh, well, one of the most surprising interviews from the last year. European Space Agency astronaut Luca Parmitano. And we began our chat by talking about the idea of becoming an extraterrestrial human. If you go up in space for two weeks, you have just enough time to understand that your body is going through some changes and then you're back on the ground. Life is normal, great experience, roller coaster. But when you are up in for six months or longer, you go through the phase of transformation where you see and you feel your body changing. You see your legs get skinnier and your face gets round. And then slowly your body reacts to that and it changes and it gets into a new state of normality. And also your behavior changes in space. Initially, you tend to move horizontally because you're afraid of knocking into things, knocking your head around or your arms and your limbs. And you have to get used to these parts of your body that behave differently. After a few weeks, I would say about six weeks, you start getting comfortable to the point that you start moving vertically again. At that point, there has been a transformation. You have adapted to space and your body is different than what it was on the ground. And so 
by all means, you are extraterrestrial. Does that surprise you, given that we obviously evolved from single-celled organisms on Earth in 1G environment, that you can adapt so, so readily to this alien environment? Surprise is not quite the word. It amazes me. One of the reasons why humans, the human race, is so successful on Earth is our capability to adapt. But to see in the arc of a few weeks, very, very quickly, see physical changes happening and, and you reacting to that by adjusting to your new body, it's just amazing. It really amazes me. And uh, it blew me away how different I felt after a few weeks of being in space how much more comfortable, how my new body just uh, fit the environment that I was in. If you want to take that thought to the extreme, that's when you start having amazing ideas about the possible future of evolution. Well, that's what I wanted to, to ask, because at the moment you work really hard to stay in shape. So when you get out of your Soyuz, when it crashes back into Kazakhstan, you can actually you can walk. But what if you didn't do that? I mean, if what if humans start living off the Earth? Do you think we will ultimately adapt to having a... There'll be spacefaring humans. Now, evolution is an incredibly, incredibly slow process. I like to think in a different way. If we want to be a spacefaring species, if we, if we really think about leaving Earth and be spacebound to a different planet or why not the different star system? We now have the capability to intervene on the human on the human DNA. We understand that there are genes that can be activated. We also we are looking into ways of activating these genes. Now we enter into a different field, which is the field of ethics and morality. But if we put those things apart away. Because in general, these things change, change in time, you know, our morality and our sense of ethics. Let's say that we decide to have a human capable of traveling through space. How would you design a human? I would try to make it the best, as adapted as possible to space flight. So do I need legs? Well, they're not very useful in, in space. Now, I wouldn't chop them off, but if I have feet, why don't I, why don't I turn those into hands? Uh, having two sets of hands would be really useful in space when you can hold on to a microgravity to, to the sides, to, you know, to handrails, and use the other hands to work. A stabilizing tail would be incredibly interesting too because three points of stability is better than two. If we put all those things into consideration, then you could imagine of designing a DNA, a future spacefaring human, an evolution of the homo, homo sapiens, call it something different but to me that's that's not shocking or surprising it's just something that we could do and maybe maybe we have to do luca palmitano from our august podcast it's totally uh, unexpected that wasn't it it was completely yeah. surprising so i've been working with with luca um we were doing the commentary for the palinespolis flight um for the launch commentary and i thought well you know as an astronaut here i might as well interview him <laughs> and we got talking about this sort of stuff and yeah absolutely completely surprising um and i kind of i really like the way you can talk to almost all the european astronauts with maybe one exception and they all have good opinions they've all thought about this stuff 
through and they're you know they're not afraid to say interesting things about the future or possible he's basically possible talking about space dogs and cats isn't i loved he? it i loved it but now i want to know who the exception yeah is. me too <laughs> i think we all know who that is um is this something david do you think we have to do that that, that actually we will end up with with humans that can only live in space. I mean, if, if there is a colony on Mars, for instance, they're going to grow up in very different gravity, very different atmosphere, very different situation. They will, but, I mean, what will the effects be on the human body? We already know that bones waste away, muscles waste away. I mean, we could be sending people off for you know, very serious medical problems, potentially, um, certainly if they ever wanted to return to Earth. Um, so I think there's a lot of other aspects to consider. I mean, it might be useful to grasp a tool and keep yourself steady whilst you're uh, doing something on a spacewalk, but... Uh yeah, that, that worries me somewhat. Maybe we should just be training the monkeys. Does it worry you, Sarah, in the same way? I think what I found interesting, actually, I was at um, NASA's Johnson Space Centre about six weeks ago, and they had all their robotic technology in terms of exoskeletons and stuff like that. And I think maybe the way AI is going and the way robotics is going, maybe it'll be more of a case of uh, humans with a bit of robotic elements than so perhaps an exoskeleton, which will help with all those medical things. And I think... Uh, you know, to quote Neil deGrasse Tyson, as long as it doesn't break the fundamental laws of physics, we'll find a way. It's just we haven't found a way yet. So maybe it's a long term thing in the future. But I think science will find a way to enable us to explore deeper into the solar system and to exist in space. When he was talking about how easy it was to sort of adapt, I I thought he's right. Because, as you know, I, I did a recently did a, a zero gravity flight or zero g flight zero g flight and uh we'll talk more about on the the january podcast but what astonished me was when i was weightless it felt perfectly natural so i i do think our bodies are adapted partly already for space because why on earth would we suddenly think yeah this is okay and the fact that he said you you just get used to it you just get used yeah. to being like that. Um, yeah, I think as a as a species, as a race, um, we're, we're partway there. I think it's just a question of science to look after those bits in terms of bone loss and what have you, and we will be able to do that. And we can get on in our, our rightful place and destination, which is elsewhere in the solar system. Colonise the universe. Yeah, which is sort of space locusts again, mm. aren't we? Yeah, but <laughs> I, I, I see us there. I think some of the biggest stories this year are the ones that are very either evocative or the amazing images that we've had. I think that the uh, 40th anniversary of Voyager, that was a sort of wow moment that you realise is still going strong. Still, You can still contact Voyager. But then also there was that final farewell to Cassini. Huygens and the amazing images we got the last images of Saturn from that that close up in September when the probe finally did its grand finale through the rings past Titan again in the moons and then uh, was eventually destroyed in Saturn's atmosphere we've had uh, new moons discovered rings look more detailed surface of Titan, geysers of water on the uh, moon Enceladus. And uh, we spoke to Linda Spilker, who led the mission. Cassini's legacy is certainly the discovery of these ocean worlds, the fact that you don't need to be at the distance that Earth is from the sun to potentially have life. And in a certain sense, we've only mined the very cream of the data, the topmost layer of the data. And who knows what other discoveries await 
in the detailed analysis that will probably take place over the next decades. Who knows how many PhD theses and other things will will come from the Cassini data, so leaving a wonderful legacy uh, behind. And what about follow-on missions? I know lots of people have a lot of interest in a lot of missions. Yeah, there's potential for follow-on missions. In particular, there's a New Frontiers program, and the NASA proposals just went in the end of April. And in that suite of missions are three opportunities to go back to Saturn. One is to go back with a Saturn probe, probe to go into the atmosphere deeply in the way that Galileo did at Jupiter and understand the composition and what's going on inside of Saturn. Another one is missions to go back to Titan, perhaps to orbit Titan, perhaps to land in one of those seas. So there are opportunities to go back for more studies of Titan. And then, of course, my favorite is to go back to Enceladus to answer the question, does this tiny world not only have a habitable ocean, but does it have life? And so I'm part of a proposal team called the Enceladus Life Finder to go back to Enceladus and try to answer that question. Then, of course, there might be future missions to go back. Maybe someday we'll take a sample back to Earth of the material coming out of Enceladus's plume and use the instruments here on the Earth to really do a very careful analysis. And then, of course, what about Uranus and Neptune? You know, we've now had good missions at Jupiter and Saturn. Let's go back. We've only had the Voyager flybys. Let's go back with Cassini-like orbiters and study and unveil these ice giants and see how they fit into the context of the solar system. So really, this is just the beginning. Oh, Cassini is just the beginning, absolutely. We've left behind so many questions that just beg for a future mission to go back and answer them. Oh, brilliant. Head of the Cassini-Huygens mission at NASA Linda Spilker. What missions would you like to see next? I just Sarah. think there's, there's too many. I, I think, <laughs> in all honesty, I'd be happy with anything because, as she just said, every mission ends up with more questions. I think, for me, Europa and Enceladus seem like the most exciting places in the solar system. I was a Europa girl, but I'm being swung round um, to <laughs> Enceladus, particularly by the, the team at SETI. And I think a mission which would be able to fly back through Enceladus's plumes and potentially they could gather enough evidence just through flying through those plumes to see if there was or is life there, which would just, you know, if it's a second genesis, which it very likely would be, particularly as it's so far away from Earth, I mean, that that changes everything in terms of society, philosophy, religion, um, everything we know of has changed because it then means if you've got two genesises in one solar system and there's, you know, hundreds of millions of stars out there, what on earth else is out there? So I think a mission which will answer that most fundamental question of are we alone should be the next step because I think once we've got some momentum behind that it'll encourage more inspiration into doing more science missions as well. David what about Uranus and, and Neptune they've been somewhat neglected I mean they've only had those those missions well the, the flyby images apart from telescope images those fly past images from uh, Voyager 2. Yeah absolutely fascinating target I've got to say I'm with Sarah on this one I think there's we've already discovered some areas where I think we should be going next and really trying to find out what is there you know rather than uh, spreading ourselves too thinly looking you know across the solar system let's concentrate on what we found and really uh, really see what what there is there. Although you know who would have thought and until those uh, more recent images of Pluto came back which opened up what basically everyone had dismissed as well it's 
it's a sort of nothing. It's not even a planet anymore, sort of, sort of thing. And then we get these images back, which make people go, wow. Uh, that could also be the, the case with Uranus and Neptune. Well, we know already with Neptune, the moon of Neptune, Triton, has geysers on it. Yeah. I mean, they're nitrogen geysers, but they're, they're geysers. And it's really frustrating. We just have these blurry images and very and, little information. Yeah. Um, I was watched, I don't know whether you've seen the recent film, The Farthest, about the, the Voyager programme. I, I really recommend it if you haven't. Actually, there's a very good radio documentary oh, yeah. on the Voyager programme. Very good radio documentary called Space I, I, 1977. Still available, well. yeah, on the BBC um, iPlayer. Where's that game? Yeah. <laughs> um, but I think they went to Uranus on a bad day. They didn't get the best images. They didn't see its best side. So I, I just think whatever science mission we do, we're going to have more and more questions, more and more possibilities. But I, as David just said, I think we've got some real gems there. And in terms of Europa and Enceladus, the moons of Jupiter and Saturn, they're far closer to us as well. So let's let's go step by step ferociously. What about a change of technology, though, David? I mean, you, you are always interested in the, um, you know, the rockets themselves. Mm-hmm. We've been talking for decades now about this step change. We need something that, that makes spacecraft get to places yeah, quicker and cheaper yeah. as well and that's a difficult task do you think we're you know we're at any point where this is going to happen uh, there is already some technology ion thrusters would work for example but you need a power source that would continue to operate and so far the furthest solar powered spacecraft that's gone out into the solar system was rosetta um, so you need that power source to keep the ion engine burning I think at the moment uh, that would probably be the best bet with a uh, nuclear power source. There are some more exotic propulsion systems out there, but they're still only proposals at this stage. We haven't seen any in-orbit testing of them. Why has it taken so long? I mean, at least with, yes, with Rosetta. But the, I remember years ago, Smart One, um, the European mission uh, to the, to the moon, ion that, engine. That, yeah. yeah, used an iron engine at the time. Um, I don't quite understand why they've not become the norm. Yeah, I think ion engines have been around since 1959, Mm. so it's not brand new technology. But when you're putting so much money on a billion-dollar project, you have to know that that technology is well-proven and is going to work when you need it to. So there's a tendency to be very conservative and go with the technology that you've used before. So that low risk, though, also has, although it's high high probability of success it actually does delay progress absolutely absolutely um which is where your commercial companies come in because they're normally high high risk aren't they we did see nasa try if if you remember a few years ago nasa had their smaller faster cheaper approach and then they muddled up metric and imperial and crashed into mars (laughs) yeah and as soon as they did that they said right we can do two but not three that's not the case i mean the commercial sector is proving that it can be done but then the technology has moved on again another decade. So you know, maybe now is the time that we can start to start to follow that approach again. This is why you insure space rockets. <laughs> this is the award-winning Space Boffins podcast. Our studio guests are David Wade and Sarah Crudders. And still to come, the second part of our interview with Apollo 15 astronaut Al Warden. We're in partnership with The Naked Scientists. On Facebook, you can find pictures of me floating around in an aircraft during a zero-G flight. And uh, we'll have the full audio experience, including uh, an interview with the parabolic flight manager in the uh, January edition of Space Boffins. We'll also post some pictures from our recording today, links to our recent BBC radio programmes, which has already managed to uh, get some of those in, including First Woman on the Moon, presented by the inimitable Wally Funk. And in fact, um, the short interview with Wally is also going to be uh, in our 
January podcast from when I was with her at Spaceport America in New Mexico. Now, I was lucky enough to meet Apollo 15 Command Module Pilot Al Warden when he was in the UK recently. And we played the first part of our conversation in November's podcast. So here's part two. Now, Al's mission alongside Commander Dave Scott and Jim Irwin was a tremendous scientific success. But when the crew returned to Earth, the heroes welcome didn't last long. They got caught up in a scandal over the sale of autographed postage stamp covers taken on the flight. And it was hardly the first time astronauts had sold items flown in space, but the crew was singled out by NASA. I asked Al about the incident, but before that, we talk about his spacewalk. It was the first ever in deep space. During the return to Earth, Al left the spacecraft to retrieve experiments from a bay in the side of the service module. I can remember looking out the hatch for the first time and saying, hey, this is really cool. I'm outside. That is really a most unbelievable, remarkable thing. Is there anything else you want me to check in the Simbay before we go back in? Al, we'd be pleased to have any general comments you had about the Simbay experiments otherwise than what we specifically asked you. Did everything look in order? Well, everything looked good as far as I could tell, except for the cover on the mass spec and the fact that the mapping camera is up. Uh, it's kind of interesting. I had practiced that whole thing so many times that it was not a big surprise. I walked kind of hand over hand down to the back of the service module to, to get the film cassette. In fact, our high-resolution camera, the, the Icon camera, it was stuck in the out position, and I had to kind of climb over it to get to the back. It was very easy. I remember going out there and getting the canister and hooking my wrist tether to it and taking it back to Jim. Went back out and got the mapping camera and took that back to Jim, went back out a third time, kind of stood up on the outside and looked around, and that was a lot of fun because I could see both the Earth and the Moon. Part of the problem was that I had trained so well on that particular thing that I was done in 40 minutes. I would love to have spent a couple of hours out there just looking around. There was absolutely no reason at all for me to stay out there any longer, so I got back in. You just said it was kind of neat seeing the Earth and the Moon. That image must be engraved in your mind. What was that that Well, it was kind of. The best way I could describe it is to show you a picture that Pierre Mion did. After the flight, since I didn't have a camera... I had to get with an artist and draw the picture that I saw. And so it's Jim Irwin standing in the hatch, and you can see me reflected in his visor. And, and behind him is the open hatch, and behind that is the moon. And, and, and that's kind of the way it looked. It was pretty spectacular. Does that give you any sense of your place in that, you know, how far you've come? Yeah. No, I don't know. I, I, I didn't get a sense of distance. The moon was huge. The earth was relatively small even then. It's like you're someplace that's not connected to reality. It's like you're in a movie watching something like that. Apollo 15, Apollo 15. This is recovery, over. Recovery to Apollo 15. Uh, everybody's in good shape, and uh, we're looking at about 3,500 feet. Uh, this is a recovery. Uh, I have a visual. Uh, one, uh, Coming back to Earth... Did you know that that would be your, your last flight? Was that something you were trying to catch all the memories? Pretty, pretty much knew then that 18, 19, and 20 were canceled. The shuttle wasn't going to come along for 10 years, so, yeah, I pretty, pretty much knew that was going to be it. Do you feel you were... I don't want to go into the, the, all the details in your, in your book, but did you feel you were badly treated by NASA with the aftermath? You, you describe all the, you know, the heroes' welcome, and then that all goes wrong. 
Yeah. What happened on our flight was not some was not something strange. It had happened on Apollo 14, and uh, they did nothing about it. I guess we probably didn't think that uh, it was such a big deal because it had been done before, but I think NASA at the time decided they needed to make an example of somebody, and they got on us. What surprised me is that uh, the stuff that made such a problem for our flight was something that Dave Scott had done. Most of that was stuff that he had done without telling Jim and I, and yet all three of us got hit with the issue, and Jim and I were forced to leave Houston, and Dave stayed there. So you answer me, what is fair about that? Here's the guy who caused it. They save him, and they throw Jim and I under the bus. Well, actually, Dave threw us under the bus. Yeah, there was nothing fair about what NASA did, and I blame Chris Kraft mostly for that. I had to go talk to him before I left, and he told me, don't let the door hit you in the ass on the way out. Uh, you're now just a dime a dozen engineer, and uh, we don't we don't want you. But he saved Dave Scott. Do you now get on with Dave Scott, or was there still a an issue? Dave and I don't talk. No. Why did you stay in NASA though? Was that to prove a point? I was actually told I could go back to the Air Force, uh, but then I found out that the Air Force uh, would have assigned me to the Pentagon in a public relations job. And that was the last thing in the world I wanted. So I saw everybody. I went to see everybody I could think of. I actually found a friend in Dale Myers, who was a a deputy administrator, who understood what had happened and was on my side. And so he worked out a deal for me to go out to Ames. And the nice thing about that was I had three years to go until I could retire from the Air Force. And I did not want to go back to the Air Force at that point because I didn't trust them. And so I went out to Ames for the last three years, and that was a, kind of a happy thing for me because I loved it. And what about your, your time since? Because, you know, again, in your book, you, you write you've almost done more to popularize space than you did through your mission. You've done more for space since than your mission itself. Well, when I left, I taught in a college for a while. Then I went through a series of things. I had a small research company, and we developed an avionics device sold that to BF Goodrich, which is a big avionics company. And they turned around then and said, we want to hire you to run the company to do that. So I worked for BF Goodrich for seven years. When I left there, I worked with uh, the Astronaut Scholarship Foundation. I did a lot of charity work. After I retired, I also wrote a couple of books, wrote the book of poetry and then wrote a children's book with Fred Rogers, did a bunch of television with Fred Rogers, uh, talking about space to kids. Ended up writing my uh, the book that you have, Falling to Earth. You ran for Congress as well. Well, I did. <laughs> well, see, that's the thing. People think that going to the moon is such a big intellectual mind thing. And it's not really. It's a skill that you learn. It's like riding a bike or like driving a car or flying an airplane. The intellectual pursuit was always uh, of interest to me. I had said a lot of things about the government and the way, what I didn't like and this and that and the other thing. And one day I just... You know, looking in the mirror and saying, you know, you got to shut up. you got to start putting your money where your mouth is. So I ran for Congress. I lost because I believed that I was an outsider to the party, and they don't like outsiders. That was very challenging for me. That made me really give a lot of thought to lots of things. And I loved it. I loved the campaigning and all that. And that was an intellectual challenge. What do you feel about this, the sort of push towards going back to the moon? Well, I think it's good to go back to the moon to find out what it's going to take to live in a hostile environment over a period of time. Whether there's anything else on the moon that's valuable to us or not, I don't know. See, I, to me, 
if we were to go back to the moon, the one thing we could do that would be really, really gee whiz is build a huge radio telescope on the backside of the moon. That I could support. Al Warden, his book's called Falling to Earth, and, and certainly one of the best, I think, from any of the Apollo astronauts. I do like an interview with someone from NASA, or particularly a NASA astronaut, particularly Apollo-era astronaut, who punches that, or punches that NASA PR bubble that you actually get, you know, yeah. you feel you've got the truth there. They're, they're old mm. enough now as well to Yeah, to it. not care about but the repercussions. I find it's interesting because you're talking about best books. I've just started reading Michael Collins' one, Carrying the Fire, which is also, according to you, Richard, another one of the best books. I think it is. I think that's um, generally accepted to be the best, isn't it, Dave? You're a bit of a... Yeah, I haven't read either of those, but I'm sorry. Al Warden's I certainly want to. No, yeah. It sounds um, fascinating. Because this is a more recent edition, he's updated it with a little, oh, a couple of paragraphs at the start. Michael Collins is basically saying... We don't want to go back to the moon. We want to go to Mars. And Mars has always been more interesting. And a lot of the Apollo astronauts, you know, obviously Gene Cernan passed away at the start of this year. And so we've now lost first and last. But I think they want to continue exploring. I think there is that frustration. But they don't want just a return to the moon. They do feel like we've been there, done that. They want to get to Mars. But I feel that's part of NASA's PR as well, which quite frankly gets irritating because they're pushing something that technically they're not ready for it yet they are putting on a face that it's within reach and it's not it's at least a decade away and I think NASA actually much as we all love them ought to be a bit more realistic and honest about their their ambitions and and for that reason I think the European Space Agency whether you want to go back to the moon or not I think it's you know that will help I people think get into, to Mars. I think we have That's to go to the moon to get to Mars. You go back there and you're on your way. What about to the, Mars? The, the 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 latest thing that everyone's talking about, although there was absolutely no money associated with it yet, is this idea of the deep space gateway. So a, a space station in orbit around the moon. Presumably, you'd be able to remotely operate something on the moon and to learn how to live in in deep space. Dave, what do you think of that? Yeah, I think all of these are good ideas, and they're, they're all stepping stones. Yeah, I, I, I completely agree with Sue. I think you know, all of these very optimistic projections don't help the industry. They don't help us. They, you know, we, when we fail to achieve those objectives, it makes us look silly. I mean, yeah. you know, and even simple things like the Falcon Heavy rocket. I mean, SpaceX is doing a brilliant job. But even that's four or five years late in, in its first launch. Hopefully launching at the end of this month. Uh, early <laughs> next year now, I think. But, uh, I mean, you know, but you know, let's be realistic. Let's project realistically. So I think things like the Deep Space Gateway, brilliant idea. Yeah, it's a stepping stone. But let's be realistic about when we can achieve these things. But we've got to shoot for the stars. And this is the only industry where you can literally but, do that. But to the public, though, if you're constantly saying it's going to be done within, you know, five years, the, the, for, for the public... It, it, Exactly. It looks like failure, Mm. which is not the right thing to be putting across because that's not the way space technology works. So why why not just be honest and make people's expectations? Then perhaps the public wouldn't think that, oh, my goodness, this has failed. Oh, my goodness, it's delayed again. Because they basically give you, you know, the old uh, rock to break your own back with effectively you're giving them a weapon against against I think you're giving the public too much credit because I think most people they think Virgin Galactic Politi- ticket holders are going to the moon they think you know some people don't even realize we've got people living and working but it's in more space, politicians like, who will use it again yeah. as well that's true that's uh, but I it, think a Mars mission against us. will happen I think it's more likely to be within the next 30 40 years and I think public private partnership um I am a champion of private as you yeah. all know but I 
Yeah, I but, think... uh, but that's but the whole point is I agree with you. Why why imply why are NASA implying and have been for quite a while now that no, um, I agree. it's going to happen very imminently. I and the fact up... that Collins has put that in front of his book makes me think he's had a NASA PR person say, no, we he want was you to add that. I think. But I, I grew up in the 90s and I remember thinking by the year 2020, we'd be on Mars. And that was a, a genuine belief. And now it's nearly 2018 and we're not going to Mars because I believed I'd be an astronaut and I'll be going to Mars by the year 2020. <laughs> um and we're not. And, and I see younger people um, through Twitter and social media who are in their like, late teens now talking about getting to Mars. They're the Mars generation. I think the only, there is some positive from it, and it's encouraging people to take up STEM, science, uh, you know, technology, engineering, math, and that's a good thing. But you're right, I do think we need to communicate better. And I think journalists have a responsibility as well to be more STEM aware and to communicate these stories better. I think we ought to say, by the way, a big thank you to Fix Southgate because she helped you fix she that She fixed interview, up the, uh, the Al Warden yeah. interview, yeah. And, and, and thanks to him for being um, spending a t- an hour. And so that's why I think we got into those some of those more personal it's issues. It's a great interview. I can't believe he doesn't often, speak to Dave Scott. Yeah. I know, it's amazing, it's, isn't it? That was, it, it, is, it was a, sort was of a bit of a revelation. Moment, yeah, moment I, I, the kind of nice, awkward silence but in the middle nice, of that. But it's <laughs> nice to hear um, somebody that you feel as though, oh, we're getting a real story here as opposed to... And I think, um, like, I mean, I was a big fan of um, Gene Cernan. I interviewed him several times. I think what he has in common with our warden is their lives after going to the moon were as interesting, if not more interesting. And they weren't just obsessed with the moon. They've had a life beyond that. And I think what our warden's done since is just as incredible. I mean, that reference to Chris Craft... I mean, I, I I interviewed Chris Craft 20 years ago, the end of the 90s, for a, a radio programme. So we should he say was, he ran Mission Control. Yeah, the, his wonderful book, Mission Flight. <laughs> yes. And he was so rude about Valentina Tereshkova. And, and I know he's admirable and, and I love his book. But at the same time, when you also hear other things that he's said and done, I'm not sure I'd ever want to have worked with him. Let's put it that way. Wow. But he, he got them to the moon. He ran a tight ship with yeah. Mission Control. Yeah. Um, can I plug Mission Control movie as well? Yes, oh, yeah. yeah. We, we've, been, we've, been big fa- we've been big fans um, of that. But I, I met him at the premiere and he is in his 90s, Chris Craft, and he is... Um, oh, he's smart, isn't he? Acting like he's in his 60s, let's yeah, just say. No, he's I... tough as nails. Well, as we've mentioned, a lot of the things we've been talking about and the, the future things keep, keep just slipping. So James Webb Space Telescope, that was due for... Well, it should have been launched two years ago, I think. Uh, it should have certainly been launched this year. It's slipped into next year, possibly the year after. Yeah, quarter two to 2019 now. 2019 yeah. now. So we've also had the uh, Dragon Capsule first crude launch. That's been pushed back. Boeing Starliner, that's the, the opposition. That's been, that's been pushed back, although they are at least training. Uh, astronauts are training for that. And, and you mentioned, I think, the, the Falcon Heavy, which has now slipped to, to January. Um, so what have we got to look forward to next year? <laughs> <laughs> You've just lifted it. Because yeah. <laughs> all that stuff slipped apart from the Falcon Heavy. And what, Well, let's talk about the Falcon Heavy then, if, assuming it launches in January. What, what is the big deal with this, David? It's... Uh, it's... <laughs> It's a very big rocket, so the cost per kilogram is going to be driven down. So you will be able to launch either very massive satellites or lots of satellites for a very low cost per kilogram. So in theory, it's a very cost effective. It's a low cost way of getting into space. It's so big that 
you, if you're mul- launching multiple satellites, they're probably going to run into the problem that Ariane Space has done, where trying to get number of satellites that are all ready at the same time to put them together on a single rocket causes problems. So it does have its market. It can launch these very large satellites. But yeah, it, in, in terms of the commercial market, it's going to be launching the very biggest satellites that are currently available. Is there a vanity element to this? And is, is it an Elon Musk, I've got the biggest rocket thing? Then? I think if you compare Falcon Heavy, uh, SpaceX's BFR, New Glenn, I think it's all very much look at my big rocket. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's a whole bunch of billionaires who are trying to develop the next biggest rocket. I certainly don't see the demand from it from the commercial point of view. Given that you know, electronics are getting smaller, we're driving towards CubeSats, smaller satellites. So it doesn't quite seem to tie in with the commercial market. It may be taking capsules off to Mars, taking um, human transport vehicles off to Mars. You know, maybe that's where, it, where its market is, but I just don't see it from the commercial point of view. You, you hang out with a lot of these billionaires, Sarah. <laughs> I, I mean, is, is, it, is it like that? There is an um, element of that, isn't it? I mean, I, they're very competitive. Yes, they are, but competition drives through innovation. And what I would say as well is keep your eye on Blue Origin um, and Jeff Bezos. He's second slash richest man in the world, obviously, depending on the stock price of Amazon. But you've got to remember with um, Elon Musk, He's a government contractor. He's getting a lot of money off NASA. Um, Jeff Bezos is funding Blue Origin himself. He's been in stealth mode for the best part of a decade. It's been all underground. I just think things are going to happen fast, and there's no reason for him to announce it. He doesn't have to be accountable in the same way. Um, so, yes, it is big rockets, but it's these people want to make humanity a multiplanetary species. It, it sounds like science fiction, but so many things sound like science fiction before they happen. Um I don't see the point in slating it or dissing it because change is happening. The ultimate goal uh, for Jeff Bezos, for example, is to reduce the cost of access to space by having reusability. That will enable more people with an idea to be able to get into space, get their idea into space. Yes, there might not be markets for certain things, but in terms of data, data is king in terms of generating profit and revenue from space exploration. And what entrepreneurs can do with that data once they've got better access to space, cheaper access to space, is going to be incredible. So we can't diss what they're doing. We've got to let it happen. It doesn't affect us. It's not taking money away from any other sort of budget, particularly with Blue Origin. So let's let it happen. Let's support it and let's see what happens. And we should also hopefully get um, the Google Lunar X Prize winner next year in 2018. I know that's sort of slipped a bit. And some Um, teams have dropped out as well, remember? Are there no longer five in the final? No, so like Astrobiotic have dropped out. And and I think it's an interesting point to make is Charles Lindbergh won the OTEG Prize seven years after the end of the OTEG Prize, which kind of has spurred on all these prize incentives ever since. That was the prize to cross the Atlantic back in the 1920s. And these prize incentives, they work... But I don't think we should stick to the time schedule. Um, no, well, that's, that's definitely happened with the Google Lunar X Prize, hasn't it? But uh, I've had contact with Team Endus in India and also Bob Richards with uh, Moon Express. Yeah. So I sort of have a, a slight um, interest in seeing how those two get on purely because I've, I've spoken to them. So anyway, good luck to all the, the teams and hopefully we'll find out uh, next year. Our thanks to our guests 
today for the final Space Boffins of 2017. They are space journalist and broadcaster Sarah Curras. Thank you, Sarah. Thank you. And also David Wade from the Atrium Space Insurance Consortium. And thanks again to Atrium for continuing to support Space Boffins. We love it. Thank you very very much indeed. Space Boffins is a boffin media production in partnership with The Naked Scientist. We have a whole load of material already lined up for next year and we'll begin to share that with you in January. Uh, Your comments, as ever, within reason, always welcome on (laughs) Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. And all our podcasts are available, well, probably forever, actually, on the Naked Scientist website and from your usual podcast provider. I also want to thank Sam, who's uh, been our our studio engineer through through most of the year. Yeah, he has. Thanks, Sam. Yeah, so all the technical (laughs) mistakes are his. Uh, thanks very much for listening. We'll leave you with our favourite bit of space audio for the year, which is uh, recorded in Corvallis, Oregon, in the moments approaching the total eclipse. This is what awesome sounds like.